Good morning. As we continue our walk through the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes for His people in the midst of a fallen creation, let me ask you this morning to turn to Genesis chapter 3, third chapter of Genesis I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. 
Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you, we pray that the work of your Holy Spirit would be obvious in our midst, that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts, that we might uh, see and hear and understand and properly apply to ourselves that which we are here taught. Lord, may we understand the reality of our fallen nature, and may we, Lord, be overwhelmed by the wonder of your grace and of your mercy and of your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have talked for two or three weeks about the fact that we all recognize, almost anyone recognizes, that there is something wrong, that things are not the way that they should be. Jesus shared with us the reality of living in this world, of living in a world where things were not as they should be. Just, just think about those months prior to his birth. And think about those few years that just immediately followed. Think about Jesus' family. What are they going through? They are oppressed by an alien government. They are required, required by that government to leave their homes so that Rome could collect, collect its taxes. Then they are denied decent shelter in the little town of Bethlehem. And then after the birth of Jesus, they are forced to flee to, of all places, Egypt. Jesus, God the Son, He became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And when you put together what we're taught in Romans 5 and what we're taught in Hebrews 4, we're taught that He came as the second Adam, and as the second Adam was tempted by the evil one, but did not sin. Instead, living in, in perfect obedience to God the Father, and therefore having no sin of his own, he then willingly, graciously, deliberately took upon himself the guilt and the consequences of our sins. The sins of those who by grace through faith have embraced Him as Savior and Lord and King. He took upon Himself our sins at Calvary. He paid the penalty for our transgressions, thereby delivering us from the dominion of darkness, transferring us into His kingdom, redeeming us from sin's curse and power, and granting us the rights and the privileges and the inheritance of being a part of His covenant family, of being children of the King. And that's why it's called good news. But it's only good news, it, it really and truly, it's only good news, it's only overwhelmingly good news when you, when you at least to some degree understand the reality 
of our circumstance. If, if you reject what we are told in the first part of Genesis chapter 3, it's not good news. It's a story for crying out loud. A myth, perhaps. I mean, it's a nice story. I like the story. But it's not good news. Good news is that I won the lottery. You know, that's good news. Good news is that I won a gold medal. You know, that's good news. Those are nothing. Nothing. Compared to the good news that by grace through faith, You're delivered from the dominion of darkness and brought to reside within the kingdom of the Son. But only the Spirit of God can open the mind and the heart of the individual to one, recognize just how desperate their circumstances truly are. And then two, to be awed by the wonder of God's grace and God's mercy. Genesis chapter 3 tells us why things are the way they are. And Genesis chapter 3 reveals to us God setting into motion His salvific purposes. Genesis chapter 3 tells us the story of the fall and reveals to us the amazing grace of God's redeeming love and mercy. Now, as we saw last week, just very quickly, in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 3, Satan, the guardian cherub, who was more eager to reign in hell than to serve in heaven, appears in the garden incarnated as a serpent, and he tempts Eve and Adam to believe that their Creator is both a liar and a cheat. Now, I was told this morning that one of our children, the only thing he heard me say last week was that God was a liar. And he went home questioning his parents about that particular theology. So it's Satan tempting Adam and Eve to believe the lie. And the lie is that God is a liar who obviously and truly is not a liar. But... Satan wants Adam and Eve to believe that he... Parents, you explain that to your kids, okay? You get that straight for them. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And this is what we read in response to what Satan the serpent has said to her. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. I always find it intriguing though. Some would argue there's no direct parallel here, and I'm not sure there is a direct parallel, but I still find it intriguing that in 1 John 2.16, the apostle describes the allurement of Satan's temptations, the allurement of sin's temptations as being the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possession. Now, Satan is such a monster. He takes what is absolutely good and he makes it bad. 
He takes what is good and he makes it evil. He takes what God intended for good and he uses it to achieve his despicable purposes. God created us with the desire for the good and the beautiful, which is, which in part is that desire that we have for the, for the good and for the beautiful, in part that, that's, that's one of the reasons why we know things are not the way they should be because things are not always, things are not always good, things are not always beautiful, and we know that. God created us with that desire. But Satan takes those desires and he distorts them. And then he tempts Eve and Adam, as well as you and me, to believe that God wants to deny us what is good and beautiful and desirable. (laughs) It is so despicable. Now, some don't believe in God. Okay, Others believe Perhaps most believe in a God of their own imagination. See, a God who will allow them, or at least will be understanding, when they act foolishly and they go their own way and they do their own thing, whenever and with whomever they choose. Here in Genesis 3, what Eve wants and what she wants now, that's always the key, isn't it? This is what I want, and I want it now. And what Eve wants and what she wants now, despite everything that she knows God has said, she wants the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, who wouldn't look at it? It's obviously good. It's obviously beautiful. It's obviously highly desirable. And so she eats. And then she gives some to Adam who was with her, and he eats. Don't miss that phrase. He was with her. It's a startling statement. What what, what exactly does that mean? I mean, either Adam listened as Eve spoke with the serpent, or he acquiesced to his wife's reasoning and deliberately chose to partake of that good, beautiful, and desirable fruit, whichever the case, or even if it can it be explained in some other way? This is the bottom line. Scripture teaches that Adam was not deceived. Was not deceived. Knew what he was doing. He knew the consequences. And he still chose to eat. How many times have you been there? I know what I'm about to do. I know pretty sure I know what the consequences here will be or very well might be. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it now. And, and Some of my grandchildren were talking this week about how ticked they were over the fact that Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Um... They were just trying to imagine what this world would be like if they hadn't. I wasn't there as part of the conversation, but I would like to have asked them, so you think you wouldn't have? You think you, would have, you, think you could have stared down the serpent? Turn me loose on him. 
Think about it. Adam lived in paradise. No wonder we struggle with sin. Adam lived in paradise. Every need met. But still he wanted what he wanted, and that is always the root of sin. I want what I want, and I want it now. He wanted what he judged to be good and beautiful and desirable. That's how sin works. That's sobering. A few years ago, maybe decades ago, a a popular singer, I don't remember his or her name, but they, they sang. I mean, they sang out loud about not caring if what they did was, was wrong because it felt so right. It should be the anthem of our culture. Adam eats. He wants what he wants. He wants it now. Adam eats and immediately, look at verse 3, look at verse 7. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Immediately, Adam and Eve are alienated from each other. They, they, they know that they are naked and they are exposed before each other. And they're already ashamed. And when you feel shame, that shame impacts your relationship with another person. They're naked. They feel exposed. They're full of shame. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. And look at verse 8. And then, when the Lord comes to have communion with them, apparently there was a pattern of of face-to-face conversation between Adam and Eve and and the Lord. And how often that had occurred, I can't even imagine. But in verse 8, they're alienated from God. And not only are they alienated from God, their thinking is so confused, they try to hide from God. (laughs) They try to hide from God. Theology is a little weak at that point. They know. Just as we know. That what they have done is wrong. Part of God's mercy, part of God's grace is that you can't get away with it. That's God's grace. That's God's mercy. They know that what they've done is wrong. And they can't stand the naked truth. Which is why in verse 10, when God calls them out of hiding, Adam immediately, I mean, the grace of God is already at work here to some degree, because Adam immediately confesses, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. But now here's sin's pattern. Shame leads to blame. God asks, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam responds, the woman... 
Anybody understand that answer? Why did I eat the woman? The woman you gave me. Bottom line, God, it's your fault. So he turns to Eve and Eve says, the serpent, who obviously the body of which God created, Sound familiar? Shame leads to the... It's not my fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's their fault. It's God's fault. It's not my fault. Now, this is an incredible moment. (laughs) You're the Lord God Almighty. What are you going to do at this point? What are you going to do? The God who is the truth. God who is justice with a capital J. The God who decreed that the day they ate the forbidden fruit, they would die. Look at verses 14 and following. Graciously, mercifully, God doesn't begin with Adam. He doesn't begin with Eve. Graciously and mercifully, God begins with the serpent. God curses the serpent, decreeing that from now on it will crawl in its belly and eat dust. And I suggest to you that that just as the rainbow, we have our house that has the most perfect location, because you walk out of our front door and most of the rainbows that ever get formed in the sky are formed right out of our front door. They're they're right there. They're just spectacular. They're just they just. Even for a guy that's colorblind, they're spectacular. You know, it's just, it's just amazing to me. Well, just as the rainbow speaks to us of God's mercy, so also the snake crawling on its belly should remind us that God has cursed the evil one. Look at verse 15. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelium. It's a very important term. The first Proto, the first mention of the gospel, evangelium, the proto-evangelium, the first declaration of the gospel, the first declaration of good news. Look at what God says. God graciously promises that between the woman and her seed and the serpent and his seed that he will place enmity, hatred. They will be enemies. The serpent to whom Eve listened. The serpent whom Eve, whose advice Eve chose to follow. The serpent who Eve, you know, I can imagine Eve saying to Adam, did you see this cute snake? God says, I'm going to put enmity between you. You will be enemies. Bruce Watke writes in his Old Testament theology, the woman left on her own... She gave her affection, her allegiance, and her friendship to the, to the serpent. But now God, by placing enmity between her and the serpent, God sovereignly alters her religious affections and allegiance. Satan, you and your seed will no longer be viewed by this woman and her seed as a friend. Instead, they're going to see you for who you are. They're their enemy, a prowling lion, seeking those whom he can devour. Satan, 
your offspring and her offspring are going to be at war. And while you're going to bruise the heel of her offspring, her offspring, that man born of woman, he will in turn bruise your head. On the front of your bulletin, on the front of your bulletin, at one o'clock on that clock, if you will, you can see the head of the serpent being crushed beneath the foot of the woman's offspring. During a family vacation, one of my grandsons found in the driveway of the home where they were staying, he found a copperhead. His uncle came to his rescue. I'm grateful my grandson didn't try to crush that snake's head beneath his foot. If he had, he might have been bitten. Jesus, the man born of woman, crushed beneath his foot the head of the evil one. And in doing so, he died. He was bitten and he died. But then on the third day, he rose physically from the dead, demonstrating his victory and the victory of all who by grace through faith. Embrace Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King. Our victory through Jesus. Our victory over sin and death and the grave. Look at verse 16. God speaks to the woman. You will have children. That's a blessing. But childbirth will be painful and, of course, sometimes deadly. Furthermore, you will sinfully desire to usurp your husband's headship, and sadly, he will attempt in a less than loving way to rule over you. Then look at verse 17. God speaks to the man, the ground you must work to bring forth food. That ground is going to be cursed only by the sweat of your brow. Will you be able to provide your family with bread? And in the end, you will return to the dust from which you came. Curse and deliverance, fall, and redemption. Look at verses 20 and 21. Look at those verses. In these verses, I believe we see demonstrated an understanding on the part of Adam and perhaps a part of Eve, an understanding of God's mercy. An understanding that God has, is doing something here. That God is, is in somehow beginning the unfolding of His salvific purposes to redeem a fallen people and restore a cursed creation. Look at verses 20 and 21. Adam calls his wife Eve. He names her Eve. It's a Hebrew word, which means the giver of life. I mean, God has just pronounced all these judgments. He said to the woman, you know, you will have children. It's going to hurt. There's going to be tension between you and your husband. Husband, you're going to be able to provide food for your family, but only by the sweat of your brow. But to the serpent, I have said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And your seed will bruise the heel of her seed, but her seed will crush the evil one's head. And now Adam turns to Eve 
And he names her Eve, which means life giver. And then God covers Adam and Eve's nakedness, their shame, with the skins, with, with garments of skins, with the, with the skins of animals. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. It is the unmerited favor of God. The serpent seed and the woman seed no longer friends, enemies. It will be painful for the woman to have children, but one of those children will crush beneath his feet the serpent's head. The ground will be cursed, but from it by the sweat of his brow, Adam will be able to provide bread for his family. The woman is named life giver. And Adam and Eve's nakedness, their exposure, their their shame, their, their sense of alienation, it is covered and it is healed by garments of skin supplied by a substitutionary sacrifice. You see this table? You see this table? It symbolizes for us the final and perfect substitutionary sacrifice. This is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Born into opposition, driven from home, afforded no shelter, exiled in a foreign land, yet obedient to His Father, overcoming the temptations of the evil one, sinless and yet the sin bearer. Now look again at the front of your bulletin. As we saw, as we shall see next week, Adam and Eve will be driven from the garden. On the front of your bullion, you see that garden depicted at noon. But of course, if you make your way around the face of a clock, the garden is also the place to which the circle returns. Why is that? I want you not to turn. I want you to just listen. Listen to these words taken from the final chapter of Scripture. Listen. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This is the table of healing. It is here that your shame, the nakedness of your rebellion, is covered by the blood of God's perfect and final sacrifice for sin. It is here that you experience the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciling you to Himself and therefore enabling you to be reconciled to one another. It is here through the body of Christ that you gain entrance back into a fully restored and perfected garden, into the eternal presence of the One by whom and for whom you were made, it is here that you find the door that leads you into that recreated, restored, and perfected garden free of sin and death and crying 
and pain. So I invite you to come and to eat and to drink and to remember. To remember that by grace through faith, you belong to Him. And by His enabling power and because of His grace and His mercy and His love and because His justice is fulfilled at Calvary and the victory is won in the garden. By His enabling power, you can know the truly good, the truly beautiful, the truly desirable. And it can be yours, both now and for forevermore. Let's pray. Father, teach us the wonder of what is set before us in Your Word. The reality of our circumstance. The wonder of Your grace and mercy fulfilling Your own just decree taking upon Yourself our sins, having no sins of Your own. So that by grace through faith we might be delivered out of the dominion of darkness and brought to live in the kingdom of the Son. Having been redeemed, our sins having been forgiven. Be with us now, O Lord, as we celebrate this Holy Supper. Use it, O Lord, to remind us. Use it, O God, to encourage it, to encourage us. Use it, O Lord, to to strengthen us and, and prepare us to live as your image bearers, that others might be drawn to the light of your truth, to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King. In his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.